Hello and welcome back to Deconstructing the Bible. I'm Jason Steffenhagen, the Associate Minister at The Well, the United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota. We are nearing the end of Season 2. We've been studying different parables of Jesus this fall, and we are about to wrap up. We have two more to go, including today's parables. We have two parables left, including today. And then we're going to do a short Advent season as we head into the month, the end of the month of November and the early weeks of December. We're jumping into Advent, this time of waiting and preparation, anticipation for the Christ child. So we're going to have a short season on Advent, some reflections on Advent. And then we're going to take a short break and dive into season three starting in the new year. So that's kind of the programming note for today as we are kind of laying the groundwork for where this podcast is headed. So we got a parable to talk about. Before we dive into the parable, and it's going to be the parable of the rich fool from Luke chapter 12. So if you want to look ahead to Luke chapter 12, feel free to do so. But before we dive into the parable for today, there are a lot of things to consider when we are examining the Bible. And that's what kind of makes it fun, but that's also what makes it hard. It's also what makes it confusing and frustrating. And so in preparing for a podcast like this, I typically, just to kind of give you a little behind the scenes, I typically read the passage, kind of dwell on it for a while, do a little reading on it. I got a few books, a few commentaries that I like to go to, kind of evaluate what they're saying, think about some other ideas that could help me dive into it, unpack it a little bit, you know, tangentially connect to it, whatever it may be. and Typically, what comes out is hopefully a fairly interesting conversation on a parable or an idea. Sometimes, though, there's a passage which just kind of I wrestle with and I don't have clarity around what to do. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of why this one is a struggle for me. So the parable of the rich fool is not that complicated of a parable. And we're going to read it in a minute. But there's layers of how we can engage this. So first of all, there's a layer of what is the book of Luke even about, right? And so at the very top, the very beginning, the very opening lines of the book of Luke, we have the author, Luke, saying, I am doing my work. I am interviewing people, talking to people, coming up with arguments and ideas. I'm constructing this for Theophilus, this person who wants to know more about the Jewish story. And so there's a lot of speculation. Well, who is Theophilus? Is this uh, a Jewish person who has a little bit of wealth and is going to pay this guy named Luke to write down the Jesus story? Is he a Roman? You know, is he part of the Roman society and he wants to understand this new kind of Christian movement within the Jewish community. He wants to understand it better. So tell me about it. So what is his background and what is he talking about? Now, there's clearly, clearly an understanding of the Jewish people, Israelite history. But then the part of it is like, well, what's the intention here? What's Luke trying to get at? You know, and Theophilus is clearly got some clout, some money, some influence if he's able to have someone put together this gospel for him. And so Luke is basically commissioned by this person to do so, which might impact 
the audience that Luke has. So he's not maybe writing to an audience that is kind of poor and on the outskirts and is marginalized and oppressed. Maybe he's writing about a marginalized and oppressed community, but to someone who's got some money, who's got some power and some privilege. And so maybe that impacts how we read this gospel. And then you dive a little further and you look at, okay, well, what's around this story? What What's the context that Jesus tells the story? And in one instance, Jesus is telling the story after he just got done kind of going after the Pharisees and the religious leaders for being so overly religious and not caring for the poor and caring for the marginalized. Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees and the religious leaders because they have been hurting the people and not caring for them, even though they are, quote unquote, following the law. Specifically, in chapter 11 of the book of Luke, Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees for their tithing. Not that he's against tithing, because he even says, I'm all for tithing, but you do it so perfectly, and you think you're so great at it, but you've missed like caring for the poor. You've missed the people around you. You're so excited about following the law that you've actually missed the point of the law, which was to care for your neighbor. And so Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees for their overly religious expectations, and they've missed caring for the poor. His criticism of the scribes or these religious kind of leaders is that they actually had access to God's kingdom. They had access to the Hebrew scriptures, but they'd failed to put it into practice. And therefore, they'd failed to pass it on to someone who can't read or someone who can't engage this. Their way of living in the world has not modeled the kingdom, and therefore, they're not exposing other people to the kingdom, right? So the responsibility of the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees is to model this kingdom life. And when they don't do it, not only are they themselves not doing it, but they're not leading the people who otherwise don't have access. You got to remember, not everybody has a Bible or a Hebrew scriptures on their nightstand and is able to read it. Their only access to this stuff is by going to the temple or the synagogue and learning from the religious leaders. So if the religious leaders are keeping power and privilege and position to themselves, and they're not modeling this, and they're not teaching this, then how do the people actually embrace God's kingdom? How do they learn that they are blessed to be a blessing if no one's teaching them that? How do they learn to care for the marginalized and the oppressed if no one's teaching them that? And so Jesus has some very strong critiques about this overly religious and this overly rule-oriented kind of black and white mentality of the Pharisees and the scribes. But then we dive into chapter 12, and Jesus seems to have almost a black and white mentality about wealth, where he's talking to his own followers about, you know, giving away all their possessions and remembering not to worry because God's going to care for you. And, you know, don't worry about this and don't worry about that. And don't get caught up in, in having money because it's a trap. And so in one instance, it feels a little bit like Jesus is saying, hey, God's kingdom is more nuanced than this black and white religious thing that you've created. But at the same time, you need to be really careful because money and wealth can be something that really trips you up and, and you should really stay away from it. And so we find ourselves with a lot of different angles or different ways into this passage. What's the, what is the, the original hearer of this passage hearing, right? What is Theophilus 
and the people that he's exposing this gospel to, what are they hearing? What is Luke trying to say through this? What's Jesus doing in the lead up to this passage and how does that impact it? And then what is this passage getting at on the surface? What is the literal meaning of this? And maybe what's under the surface? There's so many different ways of engaging this. And then the final way we could engage this is just to say, what do we know about Jesus? And why would he say something like this? And what does that even mean? Right? So what do we know about Jesus? What do we know about God? What do we know about the trajectory of what God is up to in the scriptures? And how does this passage fit in with that? If we know that God is a God who is wanting to uh, move humanity towards a sense of maturity and wholeness as they move towards Christ's likeness, as they move towards being one with the spirit where they are enacting kindness and love and generosity and forgiveness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, if we are moving towards this mature sense of being human, then how does a passage like this fit in with that narrative, within that construct? So there's a lot of different ways into this. So let's dive into the passage and then we'll kind of break it down for a second. So the passage of Luke chapter 12, 13 through 21. Then someone from the crowd, because Jesus has been caught up with this crowd that have been asking him all kinds of questions, and he's been teaching them all kinds of things. A member of the crowd says, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. So we've got an inheritance coming our way. Our father's passed away. Tell my brother, probably the older brother, right? This is a younger brother probably talking. Tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Like I need, a, I need something to live on. I need my fair share whether that's the customary law or whether that's more than the customary law. Maybe this younger brother wants even more than what he should get because he wants to, he expects Jesus to be more generous than the laws of the time. We don't know. We don't get into it. Jesus replies, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that, right? Jesus kind of is like, whoa, like that is not why I'm here. I am not here to, you know, fix your disputes about wealth. And then Jesus said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. So maybe here Jesus is kind of reading into this brother's uh, question, you know, or, or demand or expectation. You know, when the, when the brother says, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. And Jesus says, I, hey, why do you think I'm a judge over such things as that? You know, maybe Jesus is reading into it and saying like, hey, this this guy's worried about something, but He's worried about the wrong thing. He's worried about how much he's going to have to live off of and if he's going to get enough. And, you know, maybe what the law already is going to give him is more than enough. You know, we don't know the situation enough, but maybe Jesus knows the context enough to say, hey, what you're asking for is just more than you need. And so you're just being greedy here. Life is not measured by how much you own. And to kind of maybe flesh this out a little bit, Jesus is going to tell a story, a parable. He says, a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. So this man's already rich, and now there's an even more crops being produced. There's an abundance. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then the man said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20, but then God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? And then finally, this is kind of the linchpin quote in verse 21. Yes, Jesus said, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth 
but not have a rich relationship with God. I think there's a really surface level reading of this, which is a good reading of it. And that's to say, wealth and the pursuit of wealth and comfort and luxury or uh, just comfort itself and, and having kind of an easier way about things is not a healthy pursuit, right? It's That's not the point of life, to get to a place of comfort so you can sit back and just enjoy the rest of life. Now, that is kind of how things are sold to us in our society that you know, you, you, you do, you work hard, you put away money, and then you can just kind of calmly retire and just kind of do whatever you want and, and just not worry about anything. And the problem with that isn't, the problem isn't like golfing. The problem isn't having time to read. The problem is, in, is, is if that's the pursuit of your life, right? If that is the goal of your life to be comfortable and to not have anything else to worry about then you're kind of like the Pharisees who have done all the religious things so that they can just sit back and be pious and holy, even though they're not actually seeing the world that's on fire around them. If we, in our kind of middle class or upper middle class existence, are able to put away money and retire so that we can just sit back, eat, drink, and be merry and ignore the issues of our world, ignore the poverty, ignore the racism, ignore the issues of our you know, school systems and our political systems and whatever else, if we're able to just push that all aside and pretend like it doesn't exist because our wealth protects us from it, that's a problem, right? Because when, when Jesus says, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God, the natural question for me is, what does it mean to have a rich relationship with God? Because I don't think it simply means that I pray a lot, read my Bible a lot, go to church a lot. That's a religious relationship, right? Those are religious things. There's a good things. They're spiritual disciplines. They can help my relationship with God, but a rich relationship with God is more than just a one-on-one me and God type thing. I think if anything, Jesus is saying to people at this time, your faith, your religion can't just be about you, right? What does he say to the Pharisees and the scribes? Hey, you have this, you're doing all this, tithing's a good thing, but don't think that that's all this is about, is about you. This is about how you see your neighbor. This is about how you see your community. And so when it comes to wealth, the question can't just be, do you have enough for you to sit back, eat, drink, and be merry? But the question is, what is all of this for? And how does your relationship with God, how is it impacted by this? Is your, is your wealth distancing you from God? Is it keeping you from seeing your neighbor? Is it keeping you from seeing what's going on in the world where God is maybe calling you to be a part of the change that's needed? Or is your wealth something that is being put to use in order to change the systems and to change the injustices that are going on in our world? Because I don't think the question is simply just get rid of it. I think the question is, what is it doing to you, right? I I think it'd be unfair that if Jesus is going to say, hey, all you Pharisees and your binary thinking, your either or thinking, your in and out thinking, your right and wrong thinking, your, your binary approach to life, you are wrong. But when it comes to wealth, 
yeah, we're going to be binary. When it comes to wealth, we're just going to say no. Now, we do know that Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve money and God at the same time. So we do have to say that there is a level of, if it comes down to it, where you are in a position where there is kind of a battle between this or this, you might need to get binary for a moment, right? You may need to say, okay, this has become an idol to me. This has become kind of a God in my life and I need to get rid of it. I need to rip it away. I need to, to, to sell it all off because it is controlling my life. So I think the question is less about a strict rule, but it's a question about the spirit in which you are living. So is the spirit in which you are living serving and loving and engaging the world as a member of God's kingdom with a rich relationship with God that is not just about your own faith and your own religion, but is about how that faith and religion impacts others. And so it's about that and not just about your own comfort and safety or perceived safety, right? I mean, that's kind of the crux of this passage is like, you think you're safe because of this, but what happens if you die that very night? The moment that you think, man, I've got it all. I've got it covered. I'm safe. I'm secure. I'm good. What if you don't wake up the next morning? Then what use was it all? right? What use was it all? If it was all there to serve your comfort, then it's really not there at all, is kind of what Jesus is saying. If you think this is all there for you to be comfortable, well, then you need a wake-up call because that's not true comfort. That's not true security. It's not true safety because you're missing the fullness of life. You're missing the embracing of God's kingdom, the invitation to join in what God is up to, because God is about the reconciliation, the renewal, the resurrection, the restoration of all things. God is about righting the wrongs of the world. God's about mourning with those who mourn. So how is your position, your power, and your privilege moving you towards those who are hurting? And if your power, position, and privilege allows you to have access and connection and allows you to see the hurts of the world and allows you to do something about it, well then great. Like put your wealth to use for God's kingdom. Do something with it that actually changes the systems that are hurting people. But if your wealth is simply moving you further and further away, if it's protecting you or if it's shielding you from the hurts of the world, man, at that point, we are missing it. We are storing up earthly wealth, but have n- don't have a rich relationship with God. Here's the final thing I'll say after this long rant. I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. I constantly find myself asking the question, what is all of this for? What am I doing all of this for? And there are times when I would like to say, I am doing this for the right reasons. I'm doing my work. I'm making my money. I'm living in this space. I'm driving this car. I'm doing this stuff for the right reasons because I want to try to make a difference in the environment that God has me. Like I'm here. I'm in Minnesota. I'm I'm in 2021. I'm a white male, you know, straight pastor. Like what is that affording me? What kind of power comes with that? 
And what am I going to do with that? How am I going to, how am I going to, how am I going to put it to, to use for God's kingdom? How am I going to shed that when it becomes an idol? You know, how can I shed some of that? But how can it move me towards connection? How can it move me towards relationship? But then there are other times when, you know, to be honest, those things in life, uh, those privileges, that those power, it is easy to just be comforted by it. It's easy to just not have to care about all of the cares and the concerns of the world. And that's when it becomes dangerous. That's when I think kind of the harsher reality of Jesus saying, hey, if that's where you're at, then you may need to shed this. You may need to get rid of it. And so what does that look like in our life? If we find ourselves being so caught up, kind of like this brother, so caught up that, I mean, you're going to come to Jesus who is transforming all of humanity and you want him to decide a dispute for you. It's almost like when Jesus says, friend, who made it uh, me a judge over you to decide such things? It's kind of like Jesus said, do you really think that that's all I came to do is just to decide how much of an inheritance you get? I mean, come on. So Jesus is, I think at some level saying like, come on, I didn't come. I didn't come to just help you decide how to be wealthier. I didn't come to help you retire easier. That was not what I'm here to do. I am not here to, to, to solve your little disputes that are going to just make you more or less comfortable. I've come to transform this whole thing. I've come to help us understand that there is a better, more dynamic way to be human. And guess what? Wealth and the accumulation of wealth is one of the biggest traps we have. So be careful because it's not about what you store up on earth, but it's about the relationship you have with God. And that relationship is not just this pious religious thing that you have between you and God, but it's about the way in which you engage God's world, bringing God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. So here's what I'll, here's how I'll end. Here's the challenge. Look at your life. Look at your life. Look at what you have. Look at how you spend your time. Look at the types of relationships that you have. Look at the type of conversations that you have. Look at the things that you are concerned about. Look at the things that you listen to and consume. And then ask yourself the question, are these things enhancing God's kingdom? Are these things enhancing God's kingdom? And if they're not, why not? And if they are, how so? Right? So look at the things in your life and ask yourself, and I need to do this too. How are the things that I'm consuming, engaging in, embracing, a part of, doing with my life, how are they enhancing God's kingdom or how are they serving me? This is a tough passage. It's tough to dive into. It's tough to know all the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the context and everything else. And it also is fairly clear. Our job is to have a rich relationship with God and to bring the kingdom. How do we do that? Especially if we find ourselves in a position where we can maybe avoid it, where we can maybe turn it off. We can turn the channel. We can turn off the stories that make us uncomfortable. We can go through the motions and pretend that we're holy enough and now we're just benefiting from the rewards. Maybe, maybe this parable is exactly for us. Thanks again for joining me on Deconstructing the Bible. I hope that wasn't too depressing. I hope that you are 
challenged and uh, I would love to hear how you're engaging this parable or how you're thinking about it. And so if you want to join me Thursday on Zoom, the link will be in the show notes. So feel free to join us this Thursday at 1 p.m. Thanks again.